and and if I have a one goal for what they might take away, it's an appreciation of the complexity and, and diversity of immigrant and receiving communities' experiences, because there's so much in our discourse about immigration that totalizes the immigrant experience, which I think is a completely false and unproductive way to understand how people decide to move a borders, how and why people decide to, to settle in any given place if they are people given the, the decision about that, even the diversity of, of people's you know, ability to choose and the diversity of, of, of immigration statuses in the United States. We have over 80 types of visa status, right? Um, and that's not counting the uh, large share of, of immigrants, right, who don't have a legal status. And, and I don't think there are any easy answers about immigration policy in the United States or, or, or the world, uh, particularly if we confront honestly, right, political challenges and political realities of the United States and other countries. You're listening to UAR Remixed, a podcast from the journal Urban Affairs Review. That's Dominic Vitiello, a historian and associate professor of city planning at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book, The Sanctuary City. I spoke with Dominic and four other scholars whose research examines the geographic, political, and cultural dynamics of global migration on topics ranging from borders and citizenship to racism and belonging. In this episode, part three of our four-part mini-series on cities and migration, we'll be discussing some of the more tangible policy and political outcomes and processes of urban migration, including sanctuary cities and the role played by climate change and so-called climate migration. I spoke with David Kaufman, a political scientist and professor at the University of Zurich, about his research pathway into the politics of migration and asylum. The first image that sticks to my mind and also a bit the story, I tell myself and the audience why I'm interested in in migration and migration questions in cities as well was, I think, in 2008. But also before, there were were kind of protests and also occupations um, of irregular migrants, so migrants without um, a status in the city of Zurich, but also in other cities in Switzerland, demanding for more rights and dignify them, services to them. And so on, and they got hosted then for or um, um, by by different institutions, also by universities, but also churches. They offered sanctuary and opened their doors for them to protest and occupy the building. And one of the churches in Zurich was close to the library where we studied uh, at the University of Zurich, and there was kind of I went into the churches and got a bit informed about that. And then a year afterwards, so in my during my master's student uh, studies, I worked um, part time for for refugee support organizations that we helped refugees to handle the asylum process in Switzerland. So they are got very much interest in asylum law, asylum policies, also on the European level, because it's um, very important for um, um, for refugees in Europe, the European laws. Um, and after, and then I focused on migration policies in my studies. So I, I did um, political science, but also public policy and worked on migra- migration policies. And afterwards, I joined for a bit more than half a year, the UNHCR, the UN refugee agencies. But then I decided to do a PhD and my PhD was in urban studies and urban policy and towards the end of my PhD and my postdoc project I have a bit of more freedom to to, to, to choose my, my research avenue and then I decided to merge a bit urban studies and migration studies and worked on particularly urban questions of migration. 
Some of your research addresses the phenomenon of sanctuary cities and specifically how these operate in a European context. Can you explain what they are, maybe in the terms of how they actually operate on the ground? Yes, the the concept or or the practice, I think it comes from the US a lot. This is just what I read in in, in books um, that you have like refugees from from Central American countries and and churches, but also other houses of prayer from other religions offered like sanctuary to them when um, the US government wanted to deport them. And then these practices that were kind of buildings or institution-wide then spread a bit more towards cities and cities also adopted these practices. But I think um, San Francisco is one of the first ones. There was a dissertation and research about that. And um, in the specific, so sanctuary cities, what we understand now can have two definitions and the more narrow definition is a specific u.s um, definition so it's a specific product of u.s federalism because in u.s federalism as i understand it you cannot force um, a city or municipalities to cooperate in a task that is on a federal level or, or on a higher level of government and immigration enforcement is that so cities um, in this definition is then a cities or a police department um, that has passed a resolution an ordinance that express that city and law enforcement officials are forbidden um, to help um, the immigration enforcement, so the ICE, um, to, 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 to collaborate with them. So in um, so it's, it's actually a non-cooperation um, um, with the immigration enforcement. This doesn't mean that, this, that the national, the federal authorities um, cannot do raids in the city um, in itself, but the city department and in, in its officials are not helping them out. So it's a kind of non-compliance, non-collaboration. Um, this, this is kind of more the narrow definition, the more context-specific definition of US federalism than this term, because it also has kind of a, a more symbolic term to it that somebody offers sanctuary is also adopted in more wider um, in a more wider sense meaning cities that are inclusive towards all migrants and don't don't distinguish between who has documents or residency status and who not and who specifically very explicitly or implicitly formulate some laws or practices or support programs to support and protect them and this is a bit more the European definition when sanctuary is used as a term it's not a specific non-cooperation, but it's more kind of this attitude towards not distinguishing between um, who has a, a residency status and who doesn't. So how a sanctuary city functions really has a lot to do with the degree of administrative or political autonomy that the city or municipal government has relative to other levels. Yes, I mean, we see it in a lot of different policy fields. So this is also why in Europe, but I think also for other contexts, um, also federalist contexts or contexts where like also lower levels of government um, enjoy a lot of autonomy with regard to policy, but also with regard to financial means. So where we have a lot of um, 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 cities that have substantial financial means and autonomy to do their own their own type of policies. And there we see this, this conflict, this contestation, and there is where the concept of multi-level governance is very important. And there it looks exactly at these different levels of government, how this influence each other and where are there con- uh, where there are conflicts, where there are corporations, and not. Whereas more that the concept of intergovernmentalism looks more on a top-down way in how 
laws um, that were decided on the federal level or the European level gets implemented on the more lower levels um, of government. Whereas multi-level governance can be looked at from top down and bottom up and looks exactly at these contestations. And what we see, we, we see different things. And the European level has a very ambig ambiguous role. How uniform are the approaches to sanctuary cities and similar movements in European cities? Do you see a lot of variation? And not only in the types of policies, but also how cities respond to more restrictive or conservative national migration policies? On the one hand, they were the ones who set minimum standards for asylum for asylum seekers with regard to accommodation, services, housing, welfare, and so on. Where some national uh, some national governments didn't provide any standards or, or any systems, so they had more kind of favorable role towards uh, migrants. But on the other hand, especially with regard to border control and access to to countries, they were rather restrictive. And there is this specific um, Dublin regulation where we, we don't have to go into detail, but this means that the country of all, um, first entry um, is responsible for the asylum claim. And this is very problematic, obviously, because out of geographical regions, you enter in the south or in the east. Um, it would be like in the US, um, Texas or California would be uh, responsible for, for most or all of the or a lot of asylum seekers. So it's very problematic. So and this kind of ambiguous role um, together with uh, ambiguous policies of, of national states, set kind of the framework in which cities um, act. And sometimes they, for example, they openly contest the Dublin regulation and say, we are not checking for where you entered and we are sending you, um, you can leave also um, 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 our cities, even though um, when you should stay in, in, for example, in Milano, we looked at that when they said, okay, no, we are not, for us, Dublin regulation in this moment of time during the, the crisis in 2015 with the Syrian refugees doesn't make any sense. Or Barcelona, where they openly contested that and they wanted to help uh, relocate refugees from city to city, so from um, Greek islands and Greek cities to Barcelona, they wanted to install such a program uh, for more city to city solidarity to openly contest and confront them. And some of them um, some of these efforts were more successful and others not, but it's also a bit of a symbolic kind of protest against um, re um, restrictive um, asylum policy. So it's very dynamic. Um, it's not all cities do the same, but we see a bit a trend of bigger cities um, trying to contest this, um, at least the more kind of um, exclusive um, European and national um, asylum policies. Um, yes, we see a bit of a variation, and as you kind of described to it, it's certainly some some the city um, kind of um, protest against this um, high level migration policy. Certainly, something more in the south of Europe because of more kind of they are more kind of confronted with really the presence of migrants and the problems uh, um, they have as well as a bit more in the northwestern cities where they have a bit of a um, where they have money as well more to act and to do something as well as where they have a liberal progressive um, ideology not saying that other cities don't have that. And there is a bit of a pattern, but as you said, it's very context specific. For example, NGOs, uh, we see in a lot of different countries as well, present and trying to support um, the right um, of refugees. But 
um, I tried to look also at kind of sanctuary policies in um, in Europe, and there we see a bit bit this what I just described, as well as kind of countries in which cities have more leeway or more autonomy with regard to policy more general, but also with regard to their migration framework. For example, Spain has a migration citizenship framework where the re re where cities should register um, all um, migrants. And this is very historically path-dependent created, and they have way more leeway in migration uh, and citizenship questions and there we see also way more active role from this city so it's very dependent we have variation it's not so clear so i also tried to do some statistical analysis but this is doesn't work out and um, they're not clear pattern but um, um to look comparatively at the cities is is very interesting but there is not just very clear explanation do you have any examples of how cities have fostered sanctuary-like policies to protect migrants I guess the more precise term I'm looking for here is uh, regularization. Could you explain that to listeners a little bit too? So regularization is a process or, or a framework of that uh, migrants without a residency permit, without a status, they get a regular status. And so, and this um, has been done in the 1990s and 2000s by uh, on the national level by a couple of European uh, um, states, for example, Italy and Spain. In the, I think in the 2000s, they have certain kind of two or three times where they regularized a lot of irregular migrants. They just gave in to some degree and say, okay, we have so many workers, for example, mostly in agriculture. They don't have a residence permit here. They are kind of nevertheless here since 10 years. So we just regularized them. They are part um, that they become like part of migrants. So, so national states can do this as a kind of exception to their um, migration policies. So um, some countries have them in the law uh, as a normal process if on an individual level where like migrants can um, apply for it. Um, so so-called hardship clauses as well to say, okay, I'm here now since 10 years. Maybe I have a family, my family is here, my kids go to school and so on. So this hardship clause argument, also hardship clause maybe when you need medical treatment and so on. For example, France has such a um, such such a, um, a framework or process um, in mind. So, so, so either there is kind of a more general one, giving out regular status to, to almost all without checking, or you have individual based on assessment and hardship clause on the national level. In Switzerland, because we are so federalistic and we uh, cantons, cantons can do this. Cantons is the, the state, so the, the subnational level. They have specific regularization process on the state level. Um, what happened then in Geneva, what is very interesting case of a regularization program, um, Geneva is a city, a city-state, a city with the rights of, of a state. So it's a very small state that is more or less the city of Geneva or the Republic of Geneva, call it, and some agglomeration. And what they did then, um, they, they said, okay, we have a lot of um, irregular migrants. Um, Geneva hosts a lot of UN institutions. They have a lot of domestic workers without a status working kind of in, in households of diplomats and so on. And they say, okay, we want to have a fast track and a simplified procedure. And because they have the autonomy and rights of a, of a canton, of a state, um, they could do it um, and way more easily. Other cantons that are not 
a city and the problem is not so um, um, present to them and they, they're not as progressive and they don't want to do that, but Geneva could do that. So this is a specific kind of subnational type of regularization that is possible. Spain has also a more local type of uh, regularization where um, Everyone who, who lives in Spain should register in a local registry called Patron Municipal. Um, they can also be, you, you don't need a national um, status to register, you should just register. This makes you eligible for public services and you can get kind of an identity. And when you are three years in, a, in, in, the, in the country, you can kind of go through the national regularization process. Um, um, so a permanent regularization process, and you can use then the Patron Municipal to prove, so your registry, to prove that you're already in a country and you're there for three or more years. So there are a couple of regularization programs, mostly they're on a national level without um, cities or states of any influence, but in some instances, and then it's very interesting for me to research them. Um, cities have um, some leeway to do um, uh, um, to implement them, to, to have that discretion and um, to implement that in favor of um, um, irregular migrants or they can do their own regularization program. But Geneva did the, the other thing to have a more a fast track procedures and they were able to, um, through this Operation Papyrus, they were able to, um, um, to regularize around 3,000 people, 70% women and kids, and, and, and through this program in Zurich. Zurich um, also wanted to do that because they probably have even more irregular migrants than Geneva, but the canton of Zurich, so it's a larger canton with a lot of also rural, more conservative voters. So they don't want to do that. They say, we already have the individual hardship clause. It's good enough for us. Um, and then what they are now thinking about um, to do is um, uh, an urban ID card. Um, so, so they have now a program to provide them with an urban ID card so that they can better access local services, schools, libraries, contact with, with, with the city and so on. But the big question is about if the police is allowed or will accept this um, urban ID card or not kind of see that as kind of a proof that they don't have any residency. So this is a bit a big debate. It goes into courts probably at the moment. So what happens with this provision of urban ID card? But the urban ID card is interesting because it's again um, a symbol symbolic but maybe also in a materialistic um, effort of cities to to contest kind of this national that only the national states can issue um, id cards and so on so it's very interesting how this will play out david could you share some examples from your research about how this has unfolded in different contexts there have been very few qualitatively distinct migration trends across western europe over the last decade or so I'm just thinking here about the vast difference in attitudes towards refugees from Syria versus those from Ukraine. So this is not something I study, but um, colleagues of mine just also at the same institution just released a, a large um, um, survey about acceptance of um, uh, also how refugees are accepted in different um, um, cities. And what they found is, and what, what is also kind of clear from the media landscape, that people were very, very welcoming of uh, Ukrainian refugees in general. This can be a bit explained, or the researcher explained this by this um, couple of things. So they were 
mostly women, so male were not able to to leave. Um, they were rather well educated. They have a Christian religions, and they were also more European looking, white looking uh, uh, person. So this all played a bit together, as all, uh, as well as kind of the proximity of the conflict being very close close to Europe. So we saw a huge solidarity with that. But interestingly, in the research, in the survey research, this is not at the cost of other refugees. So also the 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 acceptance, solidarity with other type of refugees were, was not a, was not um, lower, not at the expense of the Ukrainian refugees. So it, it if something uh, refugee solidarity from residents was stable or even increased now um, over the last couple of years. So there's just general a high solidarity in Europe, in Switzerland, and I think in other countries, we had suddenly being able to create fast track programs for refugees where they said for other type of refugees or in the Syrian conflict, for example, this is not possible. Suddenly it was possible. So we had like also kind of a political majority for being very inclusive for this Ukrainian refugees. So we saw that a bit of um, um, yeah, very open openness to it and the politics that could move very quickly towards being more inclusive. Um, cities stepped in, but at this time, cities did not have to step in with such a force as, for example, in the Syrian refugee crisis, because the national state frameworks were inclusive. So cities did not have to compensate for exclusive national um, framework. Whereas in the Syrian refugee crisis, where we did our research, cities have to compensate for, for a national framework that didn't want to host them, allow them to come and so on. So we have like a different, also multi-level governance framework where when the national governance framework is inclusive, then cities do not have to kind of compensate for it. But when they are in exclusive and the migrants are anyway there, then cities have to be kind of more inclusive and have to be at the forefront. In this Ukrainian cri crisis, that cities did not have to be at the forefront um, of the um, efforts to to accommodate them. I mean, this is always kind of a bit the question, and some say, okay, it's now tolerance is not so high or long, and it's just a short-term thing. But I think. There is a still a general solidarity in, in European residents on a very kind of general sense. But then mm -hmm. when it's obviously when, when it's then when then the numbers raise in your country, then then the picture can change rather quick. But I think there is kind of a general solidarity. I think still the numbers are rather high for Ukraine refugees, but there is still an acceptance of, um, of them. So I don't expect a large shift, although some media tried to to um, to say this, or some political parties tried to push into this direction. That now, kind of, uh, we 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 have enough uh, of refugees and so on. But I um, I don't think that this is in the general population a huge uh, huge trend in this regard. Your work also explores how policies are translated, disseminated, and taken up by the public through policy narratives. Can you discuss this a bit further and how it does or doesn't end up impacting policy design and implementation in Switzerland? Um, political parties and other political actors in the Swiss landscape um, use. Um, so the narrative policy framework is one of uh, policy process theories that sets out that uh, policies are communicated in a certain way um, and, and they have a kind of a framework that we also use. And what we found striking over the last 20 years in Switzerland 
um, in Switzerland who has a direct democracy. So we vote about a lot of um, different asylum policies, revisions of the policies as well. So that mostly when we vote about that, um, there is this abuse narrative, abuse policy narrative come into play. What it says is that the large portions of asylum seekers um, are actually economic migrants coming out of economic region, um, reasons. They are bogus refugee and that they abuse the country's generosity. And because we have too much who are um, wrong refugees or abuse, uh, they abuse the, the system, we don't have space for the real refugees. So, and this can be seen also as a narrative, also play a role, for example, in Australia, where they have um, this whole discourse about um, people are not, should not um, come to Australia directly, they should not jump the, the line and, 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 and like this. And we also saw it in the US to some degree that we see, okay, no, we want to, I mean, some actors say we want it to be um, generous and protect refugees, but only the real refugees. So they distinct, they make a, a line between real and fake refugees where there is not no such line to make or very hard to hold such a line or, or distinction. And what we see then, so when we talk, so we talk with all the major political actors there, what, what kind of frame uh, framework, narrative, what kind of narrative they used in the direct democratic campaigns. And we saw that um, the more the right uh, ideology, the, the political ideology, the actors have, or I mean, in the US, it would be more the, the more um, conservative ideologies, um, and you have the more you're using this, this narrative, but also more in context where it's a where it's about a potential tightening or rest more restrictive asylum policy. So in this contest, political contest, about more tightening, actors are actually using this asylum abuse um, um, narrative. And they say, yes, we make it tighter, but only to also to the protection of the real refugees. Um, so this is a very strategic narrative that is being used. And then we looked at um, um, after the votes, there are kind of surveys with voters and where they were asked, what was your main reason to vote for, yeah, for, for a tightening or not a tightening of asylum policies? And there we saw kind of the abuse policy narrative was kind of very much also stated as a reason, as a one, one of the top reasons why they voted for more tighter asylum policies. And not just for people with a conservative um, or right political ideology, but, but but into the middle of the political spectrum. So it's very convincing also for, for people who are not polarized, they're not into the what's the left or to what's the right. And this makes it so dangerous because it's actually kind of a very kind of constructed policy that cannot be upheld by any means of data or evidence, but it's very powerful uh, with voters and it's, it's used in Switzerland over the last 30 years. The kinds of narratives David is describing are extremely pervasive and difficult to detect and change. Dominic Vitiello, who you heard from at the top of the episode, gets at this dilemma in a slightly different way. Dominic, earlier in your book, uh, which is a kind of historical accounting of how civil society groups and immigrant communities create and practice the sanctuary city, you call out this incredibly prevalent discourse that reduces immigration to economic benefits as its only justification. This is probably the single most common data point or set of data points that's used to legitimize more open immigration policies in the US. 
Like, look at how many jobs immigrants create in their communities. Look at how these communities revitalize struggling and shrinking cities. Look at all the benefits that we get from immigration. So how do you propose we think instead about the relationship between migrants and cities? And it's even hard to frame that question, right? Like, without coming back at the end to saying, you know, benefits, right? Let's, you know, uh, what are the benefits? <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, let me step back in, in answering that. Uh, I hope this is a useful way uh, for you to answer that. Um, by saying that I think in the United States and to a great extent, other immigrant receiving countries, there have been a variety of, of narratives or, or of frameworks that people have used scholarly Know, uh, discourse and and you know some of our core social science disciplines to understand as well as popularly and in in, in policy uh, discussion uh, to understand the relationships between um, immigrants or or immigration and, and cities and uh, some of this is really at the core of urban sociology in in, in the United States and and globally um, but especially the United States right it comes out of a, a Chicago school uh, uh, ideas about invasion and succession of newcomer groups in, in uh, immigrant enclaves and, and only really two of those uh, uh, enclaves you know remain sort of undissolved um, as uh, uh, the really two groups in in American cities in, in the early and mid 20th century who aren't you know, starting to gain some mobility and and dissolve their enclaves and move up and 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 out if you will you know, up in in terms of social class and and out towards the suburbs those two groups are, are of course black people african americans and if you're in places like new york there are also m- many black people coming from the caribbean across the 20th century but chinese people um uh, and chinatowns in particular right until you know really after world war ii you know, remain highly segregated and aren't aren't dissolving right people aren't uh, um, you know, able to continue to come, except you know, illegally, under the Chinese Exclusion Act of you know 1882 to 1943, uh, and so that's an enclave, right? That's not not dissolving, but otherwise, right? Invasion and succession right, so, uh, uh, is is the way that that people understand, um, especially in sociology, and and even still today, right? That that idea remains uh, uh, powerful, even among. Um, Sociologists on 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 the left who who uh, might be sensitive to the pushback, I think, against you know the idea of invasion being uh, so closely associated, uh, including in anti-immigrant uh, uh, rhetoric today, right? With uh, uh, newcomers generally, I think in more recent years, much more popularly, the idea of costs and benefits and tallying them uh, has been a really popular one um, for more than a generation uh, among economists and, and other social scientists. And it's certainly been a, a major part of, 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 I think, both pro and anti-immigration policy advocacy uh, and, and, and populism. But, you know, for, for many of us, you know, in, in a variety of social sciences and, and immigration policy, you know, integration is another way that we think of not just language acquisition and, and uh, uh, labor market integration, right, and, and incorporation and, and, and all sorts of other aspects of uh, political and, and social and cultural uh, integration, but also spatial. Right, uh, uh, integration, um, especially as we talk about housing and neighborhoods, and so it's another frame, right? So that that you know, social scientists and and policymakers uh, uh, use to think about the relationships between migrants and cities, and uh, uh, I'd suggest that in some ways that's a more constructive uh, um, frame 
to, to consider this relationship. And, and yet it's also fraught with, you know, all sorts of expectations on, on some people's sides uh, uh, that are really much more assimilationist um, and, and demanding of uh, um, newcomers to in some way give up uh, aspects of, of their culture, of their identity and heritage. A little earlier in this episode, David Kaufman gave us a really helpful and accessible working definition for a sanctuary city, at least from the perspective of a political scientist. But Dominic, your book is really approaching the question through more sociological perspective. And in fact, when I was reading The Sanctuary City, which traces the practices of sanctuary through the experiences of six different migrant communities in Philadelphia over the past several decades, I couldn't help but think of this book as a kind of ethnography of The Sanctuary City. Can you talk about how you define or think about sanctuary in this work? I use the term, you know, the uh, sanctuary, um, you know, not just to explore what what it means in the context of sanctuary movements and sanctuary cities for different communities, but also as as something of an analytical framework to think about um, the relationships between some cities uh, uh, and migrants. But you know, I hope uh, um, not uh, an overly idealistic uh, uh, way to think, uh, be, uh, be, because sanctuary at least the way I think about it, um, and I think the way that most people engaged in sanctuary movements think about it, is uh, a term that that really you know, recognizes an inherent tension um, and disagreement between national governments and local governments um, and, social, and, and governments writ large and social movements disagreeing over people's right to be in any given space, in a city, in a you know, national territory. And so I, I find it useful for, for exploring those tensions and contradictions and, and uh, um, the ways they play out in people's lives and, and, and in policy. But I don't, uh, again, see it as in, in, in any way a utopian sort of uh, uh, a vision, right, uh, that some people would like it to be uh, of the relationships between uh, newcomers and, and, and cities, uh, places, towns. Uh, um. Both David and Dominic have shared a lot of nuance and depth around the concept or the idea of the sanctuary city how it functions as a political mechanism, and how it is created and practiced by the communities that make it. Dominic's book examines how various U.S. imperialist interventions in the post-war period, from Vietnam to covert operations in Central America, have fostered the connections that push refugees to seek asylum in American cities like Philadelphia. This is one important structural dimension of international migration, and one that's often obscured by other dynamics that are superficially apolitical, like climate change, for example. I spoke with Andrew Baldwin, a professor of geography at Durham University, about how cities get involved in these dynamics around migration, climate change, and politics. Yeah, exactly. No, I think you're exactly right about that. My colleague Giovanni Bettini has written extensively around the way that the discourse of climate change and migration operates as a tool of depoliticization and sort of reconfigures questions about development, adaptation, climate change in terms of just, you know, a kind of raw um, technocratic managerial um, form of thinking, I guess. Within the wider context of the political discussion about climate change and human migration, there has been a kind of a recent turn, if you like, towards the urban, 
particularly in the context of international climate change policy debates. So if we go back to the Glasgow um, COP, I think that was COP26, was it? The Mayor's Migration Council and C40 had launched a campaign to, you know, get um, cities around the world, you know, municipal, you know, agencies and so forth, thinking about the relationship between climate change and migration. And the sort of premise of that policy move was people who are being forced to leave their homes because of climate change and so forth are coming to cities. Urban planners need to sort of prepare and manage for that. And that, that, that's actually quite a problematic framing, in fact. But this is why I think um, this genre of thinking and the category of the climate refugee stroke climate migrant is really important for... Now, why is this problem... Why is the category of the climate refugee stroke climate migrant a problematic one? Largely, at least for me, this comes down to the sort of... The problematic way that climate change is said to relate to migration or displacement. Very often, and here we start to get into some of the the real complexity that is baked into this discourse, but um, quite often that relationship between climate change and migration is framed in a kind of deterministic language. So climate causes migration or climate forces people to move. Um, create, climate creates climate refugees, people displaced by climate or climate refugees. And what that framing does is it it displaces the sort of historical explanations for why it is that people are vulnerable to climate change in the first place, right? So that's that's a kind of th so that's something that most people get straight away. So there's a kind of, with that notion of climate refugees, there's a kind of unstated environmental determinism that um, that we need to be careful of and sort of um, be critical of, I think. Right, because it's not just that simple of a relationship. Where it starts to get really complicated is that the discourse on climate change and migration from, say, around, uh, for the last 15 years, let's say, long, perhaps even longer, has been really explicitly trying to articulate itself against a determinist logic. In other words, what you see in a lot of policy studies, um, a lot of policy reports, particularly internationally, um, but you see it also in the academic literature, is a move away from determinist reasoning towards what people will oftentimes call a complex um, framing of climate change and migration. And what is often meant by that is that Migration is um, a complex phenomenon. It's never simply the result of climate change alone. It's the result of a whole host of intermediary factors, you know, the social context that the impacts of climate change um, meet, if you like, um, the social, the political factors that shape people's everyday lives and so forth, um, economy, uh, culture, and you know, a whole range of other variables will also explain why it is that people um, move and or are displaced. And climate change is just one of many different variables. That's, the, that's what is often meant when people say that climate change, um, the relationship between climate change and migration is complex. And yet what's interesting and, and problematic, I think, and I go into some detail in my book about this, is, is that um, that turn to complexity, there's a curious little slippage that happens, which is that 
okay, migration is a complex phenomena. It's the result of a whole range of different things, not just climate change. But then climate change is instantly elevated to become a kind of um, overarching um, first among equals that would explain migration, right? So it's given a kind of elevated status. And that's, you know, an additional sort of, um, at least to me, it suggests the kind, a kind of return of environmental determinism in the language of its explicit refusal. So we've been talking about different scales of governance, particularly with David Kaufman earlier, these tensions and authority between municipal, state, federal, or sometimes supranational governance. Each level seems to think through the political category of the migrant in slightly different ways. Since your work looks holistically at these dynamics, what bearing does that kind of global geography have on the category of the migrant or the refugee or the climate migrant? The empirical site um, has been the international. So the sort of, if the quote unquote space of the international, you know, what is that space? That's a really interesting question. But um, I've, been, I've been particularly interested in um, the way that the category of the climate migrant refugee stroke migrant figures in relation to international governance debates, basically. Um, why is that? I think it's because the, the sort of the discourse around climate change and migration emerges out of the international. It sort of it originates um, probably in the, you know, some say the 19, mid-1980s with the publication of a UNEP report. Um, others put it um, sort of originating back in the 70s, um, also in relation to um, international environmental debates. You know, climate change itself is obviously, um, you know, an international collective action um, problem. And so it stands to reason that migration sort of gets configured within the space of the international. So the, I've been focusing empirically on that as... The, the the empirical site, if you like. So not a specific region per se. So what is the international exactly? And relatedly, what is the figure of the climate migrant? I think we could make an argument that the, that the figure of the climate migrant refugee is there um, in the origins of Western thought with the, um, the barbarians, right? The fall of Rome is an effect of the barbarians. Who are the barbarians? But these, you know, um, climate migrants or, or naturalized environmental, you know, migrant zombies, whatever. Probably a more, a, a sort of better way to think about the emergence of the discourse around climate change, migration and climate refugees is to say that it, it starts to surface in, in the sort of, in the 70s, the World Watch Institute. This was Paul Ehrlich's group from the 70s, starting to make, um, you know, generate some concerns about climate refugees. You know, if the, um, um, if the environment, the global planetary environment is poorly managed, then we will end up with, um, you know, climate refugees. And from that sort of framework of Paul Ehrlich, that's Paul Ehrlich, as in the population bomb, Paul Ehrlich, a pretty widely debunked alarmist and thinly veiled racist screed about overpopulation. It was weaponized in decolonizing and post-colonial nations in the global south after being published. 
And these are also regions that are particularly vulnerable to the impacts of rapid climate change. You know, this is a, the climate refugee is a, it's a racialized figure that will be coming to a, a Western country near you, right? Like it's, it's that kind of um, uh, mobilization that's happening. Why is that significant in the 1970s? Well, it obviously coincides sharply with decolonization, you know, uh, Western authorities looking for ways of, of reasserting, um, you know, a kind of colonial imperial dominance that has been um, undercut by, uh, you know, anti-colonial movements and decoloniality more generally. So, you know, that's, I think, an important historical context. Um, again, I, I would love someone to pay me money so that I can go and investigate that in more detail. Um, but then the the sort of the next phase of that is in the mid 1980s with the publication um, called simply Environmental Refugees by El Hinwani. I think I'm saying the surname correctly. Um, um, I'm not who, sure exactly who that was but it was published by the United Nations Environment Report. And it's the same kind of argument. You know, if the global environment is badly managed, then we're going to have a real problem on our hands, which is climate refugees are going to be moving all over the place. And this will be a kind of, um, you know, it will catalyze political violence. Um, this will result in humanitarian strife. Um, and all of these things can be managed if we just get the sort of if we manage the global environmental commons um, more effectively. The debate around climate change and migration, I think we can safely say, surfaces for the first time in a report that was commissioned by the U.S. Pentagon that was published in 2003 um, called An Abrupt... What is that? I can't remember the title of it. An abrupt climate change scenario, national security implications of climate change or something like that, in which the climate migration is articulate or at least climate change climate change is articulated as a problem of migration and refugees. And again, the, all the same tropes surface in that text around the migrant as a catalyst for political violence, um, the migrant as a catalyst for strife, and so on. We barely got to scratch the surface of some of these questions about sanctuary politics, migration policy, and the role of the city in mediating these dynamics. But next week, we'll be revisiting some of these themes, along with some from earlier episodes in the series, to understand how the city itself, the fabric of it, the built environment, the social geography of neighborhoods and commerce, changes in response to and sometimes through the circulation of migrant individuals and communities. In terms of how the, the fabric of, of cities or communities is changed, I think that one of the key um, one of the key dimensions is simply around the normalization of both the presence of uh, immigration detention facilities and the normalization of a perspective whereby migrants are themselves understood as, as criminals. So I think that that has become very ingrained, very normal uh, for not only for the communities that are kind of housing in, in, in immigrant 
uh, detainees in these kinds of facilities, but also across the entire uh, uh, country. You've been listening to UAR Remixed, a podcast by Urban Affairs Review. Special thanks to the Lindy Institute at Drexel University and the editors at UAR. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. This show was written, hosted, and produced by me, Emily Holloway. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, urbanaffairsreview.com, for more information about the journal and the show, and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. See you next time.